Hey, what's up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studios. I'm your host, Quentin, and today's podcast is 70s Baseball Part 2. Super excited to get recorded on this episode. I'm going to talk about some of my favorite players from the 70s, and I'm super excited for it. There are so many badass dudes from the 70s. These guys are all just gritty as shit, man. I love it. Like, I think I'm probably going to have to turn this into a full 10-parter, sort of like Ken Burns' documentary. (laughs) And I'll just go on, man. You know, 10 parts. You know, not... It won't have the professionalism that, you know, a PBS documentary does, but it will for sure have way more beer than what a PBS documentary does. Like, we're more like not PBS, but a lot of PBR, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to go get a case of hams, and we're just going to knock this out. I think from now on after this, there's going to be a 10-beer minimum when you're talking 70s baseball because that's the way it has to be. Like, I don't think you can talk 70s baseball unless you've got a pack of, I don't know, Winston's or Marlboro's and then like some Schlitz, you know, but they don't make Schlitz anymore or they might. I really don't know. Schlitz may come in a 40 ounce for all I know, but I do, I do partake, partake in a good 40 ounce every now and then, you know, I'll stop by the quick trip and, you know, buy a pack of Marlboro's and a 40 ounce of High Life and then try to fix something, you know what I mean? Because I feel like if, I've got that grittiness of a 40 ounce of, you know, some fine booze like High Life or Old English or King Cobra if you really want to get shit done. You're rocking pretty good, right? So, like, but it's so fun. I love that with the 70s, man. Like, it didn't matter. Like, guys didn't work out in the 70s. They didn't really care about getting in great shape or anything like that. They would just, like... You know, in the winters, a lot of times they would have second jobs. Like, there was a guy for the Cubs that had a second job as a grave digger. It was Richie Hebner. This guy named Richie Hebner, he was a third baseman, and he, he came up with the Pirates. He was a Pirate for a long time, and then ended up being a Cub, I think, like in the late 70s or early 80s, right? And Richie Hebner, every offseason, he would work as a grave digger because that's what players did in the 70s. They didn't work out with weights. You know, they didn't take creatine or protein or any sort of muscle supplements. It was all nicotine and hard work, right? And this one time, listen, so what it was is Richie Hebner's dad and brother owned a grave digging business. So on the side, he would dig graves and I think make like five bucks a grave or something like that, right? So it was a, oh shit, no. He earned $35 per grave for digging a grave. So digging graves for Richie Hebner was a commission job. (laughs) You know, the more people that died, the more money he had, (laughs) which is crazy. And listen, this one time, Richie said that his dad got pissed at him. It was like talking shit. And he was like, he said that his dad got mad at him for digging a grave too shallow. And Richie's like, well, I never saw anyone get up from it, which is an astute observation at that point. You know, he guys working a commission job. So you only want to dig the grave as deep as you have to because you got to get on to the next one. I was a salesman and I sold cell phones at a Verizon and AT&T store, right? It's just a numbers game at this point, right? Like you have to get it going. And right. So but that's what I'm saying, man. Like it was just tough, gritty stuff. Like anything really went, man. Like I like, do you remember being a kid and riding in the truck bed of your dad's truck? <laughs> Like, that's what I equate 70s baseball to. Like, it was completely lawless. Safety, we didn't really care about because any slide into second base was meant to maim the second baseman by any means necessary. And that's 
the perfect, what I believe the perfect analogy for 70s baseball. You, like four of your buddies in the pickup bed, your dad's driving somewhere, you guys are going out to the lake for the 4th of July, none of y'all got shirts in the back seat, you're just dirty as hell. Your dad's in the front seat. He's smoking a Marlboro. He's got a Keystone light in the cup holder. And, like, you know, we're in the back of the truck bed. We're eating McDonald's. When we're done with the McDonald's, we're just throwing it out the side of the road, right? It's just, it's a grimy situation, but it's really fun. And to me, that's what 70s baseball is. You know, likewise, if you're in the 70s, like, you know, these players in the offseason, they would just work their jobs, their gritty jobs, smoke and drink, get into spring training, and sort of like, you know, just jog around or whatever, then have a few smokes in the dugout. And it was just free range, man. It was free, gritty living. Like when I was a kid and rode in the back of my dad's truck, like I felt like I was just a gritty dude. Like I knew I could fall out at any time. And that was just sort of the price you had to pay to be in the back of the truck. But at the same time, with the free lifestyle that you had, you know, for example, like smoking cigarettes in the dugout or being in the truck bed of your dad's truck with the wind blowing in your hair. It's sort of like, hey, when you're that cool, anything can happen. But, you know, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it, right? And that's just what it's all about in the 70s. Like, so the first player I'm going to talk about, <laughs> that's what I love about the 70s most, man, is because just sort of anything went. Like the first guy I'm going to talk about was uh was Dick Allen, right? And Dick Allen was a phenomenal, phenomenal dude that came up with the Philadelphia Phillies, right? And Dick Allen is probably the guy that hit a baseball harder, as hard as anybody in Major League Baseball, right? There's a guy named Bill Jenkinson, and he's this old baseball historian. I'm not even too sure if he's still alive, but he has seen a lot of dudes hit baseballs, right? All the way back from Babe Ruth to Mickey Mantle, Dick Allen, and onward, right? And this guy, Bill Jenkinson, rated the four top dudes he had ever seen in his life, long-distance sluggers, dudes that could hit a baseball harder than anyone. I'm talking when they get into the batter's box, it's just a fucking execution, right? The pitcher's going down. So he ranks his top four guys. Babe Ruth, number one. He said Babe Ruth hit him harder than anybody, right? And he definitely hit the booze and the hot dogs harder than anybody as well. You know, girth counts, you know, when you're trying to hit baseballs, right? Which is another thing about the 70s where it's like so gritty, right? It's just like, you know, it's that girth that, you know, puts the ball into the stands, right? Today's guys like Giancarlo Stanton's, they're doing calisthenics, they're working out, they're eating kale, they're watching their calories, and then they'll pull a groin and be out for 12 weeks. Do you think Babe Ruth ever pulled a groin? And out for half the season? Um, I don't think so, pal. Yeah. So Babe Ruth was the guy that hit one hardest. And then he said Jimmy Fox, who was a fucking tank, man. Jimmy Fox was a stud horse, dude. And then Mickey Mantle, right? That was his third hardest hitting dude. And then the fourth, Dick Allen. And actually, he sort of rated Dick Allen and Mickey Mantle and Jimmy Fox as all sort of like, these guys can hit a baseball just about the same strength but Babe Ruth he had like completely escalated right Babe Ruth was just like an absolute god and that was sort of what the thing was about Dick Allen now Dick Allen you probably have seen the picture of Dick Allen in the 1970s Sports Illustrated he's on the cover and he's juggling three baseballs he's got the nacho helmet on right the helmet with no ear flaps which is a true sign of grit right it's like it's mustache chops hair out the helmet, nacho helmet. If you have those four things, 
you can just about rebuild any carburetor you come across and kick anyone's ass, right? And so he's juggling these baseballs. He's got the nacho helmet on. He's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And it's just like that was the picture that Dick Allen in Sports Illustrated thought would be the best, right? Like I can see it now, the photographer saying like, hmm, Dick Allen being like, hey, man, I can juggle because Dick Allen was sort of a showman, right? Dick Allen actually saying R&B music under Groovy Grooves Records under the moniker Rich Allen because um, I think his name must be Richard Allen or something because he goes by Dick. Some folks called him Richie, but he didn't like Richie. He said Richie sounded like a little kid's name. So he went by Dick Allen in baseball, but went by Rich Allen in the R&B scene. Sort of like, um, who did Ron Swanson play Duke Silver? You know, Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec, where he had the Duke Silver character, where he would like go out on the side and sing like, you know, just sweet, sweet tunes. Well, that is what Dick Allen did. This huge, strong dude, man, had a hell of a singing voice, right? And yeah, I guess they were just like, Dick Allen was probably like, you know, I can uh, juggle these three baseballs. That would be cool. And I would imagine the uh, the Sports Illustrated guys were like, that's pretty good. Can you do it while you're smoking? And Dick's like, yep. And it's like, got it. Good shot, man. Because that was just sort of the, you know, the uh, the high point. You know, that was, that was just the brand of the 70s. And that I absolutely love. Now, Dick Allen, Dick Allen is widely regarded as the best player not in the Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not talking about steroid era guys, right? Like Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens. I think that's a bit of a different conversation. But, and I still honestly, myself, think Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds included in the conversation that Dick Allen is still the most deserving guy to be in the Hall of Fame and not actually be in the Hall of Fame, right? But one of the weird things about Dick Allen was that his his milestone counting numbers, like 500 home runs, 2,500 or 3,000 hits, right? Those numbers aren't there. Dick Allen played in a pitcher's era. A lot of folks call the years that Dick Allen played the second dead ball era because it was heavily dominated by pitchers. If I'm not mistaken, they raised, they no, they lowered the mound. I think it was at the end of the 69 season, I believe. And by that point, Dick Allen had already played his first year, his first tenure with the Phillies. I know Dick Allen went to the White Sox in 72. So in 71, he was on the Dodgers. I think in 1970, he was on the Cardinals, right? And he won his MVP in 72. So he played in a very heavy pitcher-friendly era, but also in a lot of pitcher-friendly parks, like the, the Bush Stadium he played in, which may have been called Sportsman's Park. I may be mistaken on that. And Comiskey Park, you know, that was a pitcher-friendly park. I think when he played with the Phillies, which I guess would have been at the Vet, right? I think. Big Concrete Donut, that was a pitcher's park, I believe. So it's like, yeah, he never hit 500 home runs and actually never even had 2,000 hits because I, of sort of those reasons, right? But then there was a lot of stuff that kept him off the field, too, which I may or may not get into later because I want to get to the good stuff. Um, but that's meaningful stuff, nonetheless. I don't mean to dismiss it. But his his average style numbers, like, for example, his slugging percentage is one of the highest slugging percent. It was one of the highest slugging percentages of the era that he played in. So from 1960 to 1980, Dick Allen had the sixth highest slugging percentage of everybody. Now, of a lot of players that 
you know, intersected the years that he played, like a little bit before, a little bit after, guys like Hank Aaron, Jim Rice, Mickey Mantle, Frank Robinson, Willie Stargell, Mike Schmidt, really heavy, hard hitters, Reggie Jackson, all of those guys slugged around or a little less than what Dick Allen did. So Dick Allen was right up there with elite sluggers that could hit 500 home runs, but he just didn't do it because of probably the era and the ballparks he played in right now. Also, Dick Allen has an insanely high OPS plus, which is a really good number to compare players' uh, offensive production in different eras to sort of account for that number, right? Like, for example, when Dick Allen won the MVP in 1972, his numbers, they were really, really good. He led the league in home runs, RBI, slugging percentage, on-base percentage, missed the batting title maybe by like 20 points or something like that. And his OPS plus that season was 199. Now, that particular season, if you judge by that OPS plus number, which, like I said, and I like to shit on advanced data, but but it's a good number to sort of put into relation how good Dick Allen was compared to players now because it's a hard thing to compare, right? Like, I was born in 83. I never saw Dick Allen play, and a lot of folks listening may have never seen Dick Allen play. But that one night, that OPS plus number can help me to compare him to Bryce Harper's 2015 MVP season or Mike Trout's best season ever, whichever that may be. And Dick Allen's MVP season of 72 was better than Bryce Harper's 2015 MVP season, which is looked at as a very elite season. And likewise, Dick Allen's MVP season is better than any season Mike Trout's ever had when you compare that to OPS+. And Mike Trout is looked upon as the best player, the best offensive player in baseball right now, best position player in baseball right now, and will likely go down as one of the best guys to ever play the game. But at this point, what we've seen of Mike Trout, who, if he retired now, would be a Hall of Famer, judging by the OPS number, OPS+, has not had a year yet as good as Dick Allen's 1972 MVP season. Now, there are a lot of really cool stories about Dick Allen. I think, and actually, I'll tell you this right now, I don't think it'll happen, but I, I sent, you can send Dick Allen a message if you go to like his personal website, you can contact him or like on his Instagram. So I sent Dick Allen a message today and asked him if he would be on the podcast. Listen, I don't think he'll respond to me, but if he does, I'm going to be nervous as shit because I think Dick Allen has a really good baseball story, which I think is one of the best, right? So, for example, like, Dick Allen swung a 42-ounce bat. Like, he was, um, it was early in his career. Some guy brought him, like, a bag, like, a box of bats, and Dick Allen pulls one out, and the guy was like, you need to be swinging that bat. And at the time, you know, well, really, it was before that, you know, when guys like, Ted Williams, Ted Williams advocated for a lighter bat because he's like, that's how you get bat speed. But Dick Allen had a, a tiny waist and a wide back and was just fucking strong. So this guy was like, you need to be swinging that light bat. You need to be swinging this 42 ounce bat. And as it turns out, Dick Allen could really swing with some power and torque with a 42 ounce bat. Dick Allen, he said when he got the bats, he goes, these things were so heavy. That thought they still had the roots on him, you know, because he was like, this bat is like a half pound heavier than what most guys swing with. But it turns out it worked out pretty good for him because he hit a lot of bombs, right? Listen to this. So Old Comiskey Park, which I think is one of the best ballparks ever. Like when you talk about all time scoreboards, I think the one at Old Comiskey is definitely a top three scoreboard of all time. Like I know I like it better than Wrigley. 
I like it better than Fenway. I probably, I probably think it's the best scoreboard that ever existed. I like the situation that the Toronto Blue Jays had at Exhibition Stadium. I love just basic baseball stadiums, and it was like the the Comiskey Park was still like an older park. It just had a rad, it had a rad scoreboard, man. It had like these uh these like pennant pinwheel looking things on the top. It always had like a Bud and a Winston billboard on it. Cause like I said, seventies baseball, man, that was uh you know, that was the good stuff. And it, it was just an awesome scoreboard, right? So basically what it was is he didn't hit the scoreboard at Comiskey, but on Sundays, Harry Carey, back when he called games for the Sox, he would uh, call the games on Sundays from way deep in the center field bleachers and just get drunk with the fans, loaded up on Schlitz and Bud or whatever he was drinking. I think actually, funny story, um, when Harry Carey was calling games for the Cardinals, he uh, the Cardinals let him go because he supposedly um, had an affair with the owner's wife and nobody ever admitted to that. But they, uh, the Cardinals obviously let Harry Carey go because of that. And, you know, it was Bush Stadium, right? So, you know, Budweiser, all the, all your, like your Bush beers or whatever, that's what, um, the, uh, the Cardinals ownership had. His name was, uh, Augustus Bush, like the first or second or something like that. So either way, Harry Carey takes the job with the uh, Chicago White Sox, right? From the Cardinals because he gets canned because he may or may not bang the, uh, the owner's wife, which you don't do if you want your job. And he has his press conference with the Chicago White Sox. And the first thing he does is crack open a Schlitz as sort of like a symbol. Like, hey, I'm not going to drink Bud anymore. I drink Schlitz. Because again, in the 70s, it's about what you smoked and what you drank, right? So on Sundays, Harry Carey would call games from deep center field, just get hammered with the fans, right? He always had like a fishing net out there to try to catch a ball, but no one had really ever hit a ball that far deep center. Well, one day, obviously Dick Allen's at the plate. Dick Allen hits one so fucking deep. Harry Carey's calling the game probably like 13 beers in, right? Lucky 13. And he's like, oh, we got holy cow. And then he almost caught the ball with his net, man. And they were just all in shock that Dick Allen had hit a ball this far because nobody, you know, folks were hitting balls in those deep recesses of, you know, Comiskey Park. And that's what Dick Allen a lot of times did. He hit a ball at Tiger Stadium once off like a facade that was 485 feet away and like 85 feet up in the air or something like that. Just bonker shots. And it's because he was just a strong dude and had this 42-ounce bat, which is like as heavy as a newborn baby, right? So it was completely crazy, man. And But listen to this, though, dude. Another Dick Allen story is there was a guy named John Ogden, right? And he was a scout for the Phillies. Now, he discovered Dick Allen, like Dick's junior year of high school, and he sees him, and he's like, that's the guy we need. Like, I want that guy right there. So basically, for the next year and a half, the scout is, like, not letting Dick Allen out of his sight because the second he graduates, he's got to make sure that guy's on his team. So Dick Allen graduates. The Phillies immediately sign him the day of graduation to a $70,000 signing bonus, which seems really high, right? I couldn't imagine being a senior in high school and making, you know, $70,000. When I was a senior in high school, I was pushing carts at Walmart at $5.50 an hour and, you know, sneaking off to Taco Bell during my shift to get three soft shell tacos in a chalupa. So our lives went through very different directions, right? But Dick Allen was always a good kid, man. So he had the power, but he also had the makeup, right? Like he had the power of He-Man, dude, for sure. So 
this John Ogden, man, he's got him like in spring training or whatever. Now, what's funny about John Ogden is he used to be a pitcher uh, for like the Baltimore Orioles and like the International League Baltimore Orioles, like uh, from 1919 to 1925. So during that time when John Ogden was a pitcher um, for wherever he played, he pitched to Babe Ruth a few times. And what's funny is the uh, um, John Ogden's coach when he played for the Orioles in the International League was a guy named Jack Dunn who discovered Babe Ruth, right? So they were all like pretty close and tight. And so John Ogden had actually pitched to Babe Ruth before. And he said, so he had firsthand accounts of exactly how hard Babe Ruth could hit a ball. He said, John Ogden said that Dick Allen was the only guy he had ever seen in his life that could hit a ball as hard as Babe Ruth. Even Willie May said that out of all the guys he had ever seen, that Dick Allen hit a baseball harder than anyone. Goose Gossage actually played with Dick Allen in the 1972 season. And Goose Gossage still says to this day that Dick Allen is the greatest baseball player he's ever seen in his entire life. But Dick Allen, just all around gritty dude. Like one of the things I like about Dick Allen and really a lot of the players in the 70s is like jokes aside, cigarettes and beer aside, they were really tough guys, right? So in one of Dick Allen's first assignments, he had to go play baseball for um, I, a Phillies affiliate in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, that's in the South, and this team had never had an African-American baseball player play for him, right? So when he came to town, the whole city was actually staging protest parades saying that they didn't want this black player on the team. Now, could you imagine being 21 years old and going somewhere and everyone hating you and telling you to leave, right? That's what happened to Dick Allen. But one of the wild things is, do all that bullshit, Dick Allen still led his entire league in total basis, right? He just didn't care, man. And it was like the mental resolve of the guy was wild. Now, there were a lot of things that happened in his career. For example, there was a guy named Frank Thomas who played for the Phillies that was uh, really racist to Dick Allen and actually hit Dick with a baseball bat. So they got in a fist fight and Frank Thomas got canned from the team. But, but Philly was pretty hard on Dick Allen as well, being a being a black dude, because um, you know they thought that he just fulfilled all these stereotypes. Like he got a white guy fired because Dick Allen, because Frank Thomas got let go. But in all reality, Frank Thomas hit Dick with a baseball bat. But Phillies management had told all the Phillies players that they couldn't publicly speak about this to the media because they didn't want you know the the craziness of the clubhouse to leak out. So it was up to the writers and the press to sort of make their own assumptions, right? And then, of course, just like any other player, when Dick Allen would get hurt or anything, they would just think he was being like a whiny baby or whatever, right? But he was actually, Dick Allen was actually a really tough dude. Like, he played, he played exceptionally good baseball through a lot of hard times, right? Like when I mentioned the nacho helmet earlier when he was in the dugout, when he played his position, like especially on first base, he would, because Dick Allen, I believe, played some third base as well, but Dick Allen was his best at first base. Like during his career, he got moved a lot, but he his best position was first base. And he would wear his nacho helmet just like John Allerud at first base because fans would throw shit at him, man. They would throw like batteries at him. And, you know, anything they could get their hands on, right? Really crazy stuff, rocks, whatever. And he still found a way to put up huge numbers through all of those hard times, right? And even one time when he was with the White Sox, I kid you not, he broke his fibula. 
Dick Allen broke his fibula. Now, if you break your fibula, that can take about 12 weeks to heal up, right? You got a long process for it. After five weeks, Dick Allen attempts a comeback, right? So 12-week healing process, he's like, hey, man, I think I'm ready in five. So Dick Allen played one game, but that he had to sit out the rest of the season because he said the pain was too great. I mean, I imagine if you have a broken leg, yeah, I got a hard time walking on it, right? But he still went three for five, which is completely crazy because talk about a strong dude who basically went three for five with a freshly broken leg, and I love it, man. Such a stud, and, you know, all of his numbers, right? The thing about Dick is, like I said, the milestone averages aren't there. But he had a career batting average of 292, a career slugging of 534, and a career on base of 378. Now, Dick Allen struck out a pretty good amount, but I like that on base percentage because he could definitely draw walks and get on base, which I think was huge. Plus, he was pretty fast when he needed to be, right? Like, Dick Allen's not just some lumbering like Mark McGuire or, you know, Barry Bonds post-steroids type of dude. He was a quick guy, and when he needed to run, he could absolutely do it. Listen, though, one time against the Twins, Burt Blylevin was pitching, right? And Dick Allen hit two inside-the-park home runs in the same game. And what's funny is he also hit him to the same outfielder as well, which you got to feel bad for that guy because both of them, you know, had a, had misplays, right? And But two inside-the-park home runs in one game, like, you got to like it because you know he could book it, dude. And also, like, one of the things I wanted to say, too, is check this out. So of all major league batters that hit 500 or more home runs, right, who played during Dick Allen's career, like, like they intersected each other either at the beginning of Dick's career or at the end of Dick's career, right, which includes guys like Hank Aaron, Mickey Mantle, um, a lot of names that I read, Hank Aaron, Jim Rice, Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, Frank Robinson, Willie Stargell, Reggie Jackson, Dave Parker, Harmon Killebrew. I'll stop. A lot of big-time sluggers, even like Dave Kingman, who could slug a fucking baseball, right? Out of all those guys, tons of guys, the only guy that had an OPS plus higher than Mickey Mantle was Dick Allen. Like, Dick Allen had the same OPS plus as Willie Mays, basically the same as Hank Aaron because Hank Aaron was just one point lower and actually had a higher OPS plus than King Griffey Jr. by 20 points. So picture that. From an OPS plus standpoint, just as good as Hank Aaron, just as good as Willie Mays. Like, really, in the whole modern era of baseball, Dick Allen is really tied for, like, 16th in career OPS plus. Dick Allen had the same OPS plus as Frank Thomas, Willie Mays, one point ahead of Hank Aaron, one point ahead of Joe DiMaggio, one point ahead of Mel Opp, two points ahead of Manny Ramirez, who took a bunch of gear. He had, more, he had a higher OPS plus than Honus Wagner. Really, the only guys that had higher than him, you're getting into, like, Tris Speaker, Hank Greenberg, Johnny Mai, Stan Musial, Jimmy Fox, Mark McGuire, a lot of legends, dude. Barry, uh, Babe Ruth leads the OPS plus category all time with 206. But that's what I'm getting at here is, and I'll close it at this, Dick Allen's a Hall of Fame player, and he's got Hall of Fame stats. He just played in a pitcher-friendly era in pitcher-friendly ballparks, but ultimately, he's an elite dude, especially in the 70s. Listen, okay, so the next the next player from the 70s that I have to talk about really isn't a player, but he was a manager, and he was just as important, if not more important, and that is Earl Weaver. <laughs> Listen to me right now. I know that Bobby Cox Holds the record for ejections, which is 151. Now, if I can put this into a present-day analogy, it's like 
Bobby Cox is Kobe Bryant, right? He's really good. He may have scored more points than what Michael Jordan did, but Earl Weaver would be the Michael Jordan of getting ejected from baseball games. He is the absolute GOAT. He got ejected 94 times in his career from games, but the way he did it was amazing, right? Like we've all seen like managers these days, like in the minor leagues and then Lou Pinella did it where he would, they would rip a base out of the ground and we would look at it and say, oh my God, I can't believe he did that. Listen, Earl Weaver first ripped a base out of the ground in 1964. Yes, Earl ripped third base out of the ground and marched <laughs> marched his ass to the clubhouse with the back because he said, if you're going to kick me out of this game, well, you're not going to play the game and we don't really care. Listen, I got to tell you this right now. What, there are so many, so many impressive ways that Earl Weaver got kicked out of a game. But what else do you expect from a guy that had a secret pocket sewn into his shirt to hold his pack of smokes? Yes, correct. Every jersey that Earl Weaver ever wore, he went to, I guess, I assume some sort of top-of-the-line seamstress and said, listen, I, I smoke rally cigarettes, and I smoke three packs a game. Maybe a truly, truly one pack a game, right? Like, Earl Weaver had a pitcher named Don Stanhouse, and Don Stanhouse was sort of like, um, he, he, he was one in 1979, Don Stanhouse was Earl Weaver's top reliever, man. He was like the ace that they had in the bullpen, right? But but Don wouldn't let powerful hitters beat him. So, for example, if he was facing Reggie Jackson, he wouldn't intentionally walk him, but he would mess with him for about 10 or 12 pitches because he said he wanted to get the guy that was on deck tired and bored from waiting because he would just pitch around guys because he was not willing to get beat by Reggie Jackson. So what Don Stanhouse would do is if he if he didn't want to face you, he wouldn't just intentionally walk you. He, he would mess with you for a while, end up walking you and putting you on base. And he wasn't afraid, Don wasn't, to walk two guys in an inning if he didn't want to face him because he was confident he could get the next guys out, right? And that drove Earl Weaver up a wall, man. So Earl Weaver nicknamed Don Stanhouse Full Pack. Because he, he said when Don was on the mound that he would damn near smoke a whole pack of Raleigh cigarettes because he couldn't deal with the stress, man. And he kept telling Don, why you got to walk all these guys? You walk too many guys. And Don's like, listen, I'm not giving up the middle part of the plate. I'll put that guy in because I'll get the next guy on. And Earl, you know Earl was high strung, man. And so that was the case, right? So every time, every jersey he ever had, secret compartment, for Raleigh cigarettes, man. And that's what I love about the 70s. It's like, I talked about it some on the last episode of the podcast. Cigarettes were the original performance enhancer, and I love it. But listen to this. So there are a few really funny ways that Earl Weaver got kicked out of a game. First and foremost, Earl Weaver was ejected from both games of a doubleheader three times. So think about that for a second. Both games of a doubleheader three times. It's like Earl Weaver gets kicked out of a game, right? Goes back in the clubhouse. He's got to wait for the second game. He can't leave. So I would imagine Earl Weaver's in the back of the clubhouse just knocking out Schlitz, smoking cigarettes, and thinking everything he's going to say because the same umpires are going to be out there for game two. So, you know, you got two hours later, Earl Weaver's hammered. He comes out 
to exchange the lineup cards probably tells the ump to stick it up his ass and gets ejected again. And listen, that's not me being, you know, making stories up because one of the other most impressive stats is that indeed Earl was ejected twice from games before they even started. And he was ejected once during the lineup card exchange. I don't know what this guy had to say, but if he wasn't the Michael Jordan, if he wasn't the Christopher Columbus, if he simply wasn't the Jesus of getting kicked out of games, showing people the way and showing them how to do it. I don't know who was, man. Simply put, Earl Weaver was a trailblazer, man. He was walking the Oregon Trail, and he made it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, dude, playing Oregon Trail, by the way, in grade school was probably one of the most legit things you could ever do. I feel sorry for kids that are old these days. They don't know what dial-up internet is. Kids these days, they don't know what it's like to have, you know, a queue of songs downloading on Napster and then have your little sister pick up the phone and fuck the whole thing up, right? But I digress, dude. But I think that's just so rad. Like, how you get ejected from both games of a doubleheader, man? Like, Earl was not having it, but I think probably more impressive for sure is getting ejected before the damn game even starts. I love it. But check this out, right? So, before Earl got his job with the Baltimore Orioles, he was coaching a minor league Orioles team, right? And the owner of the Orioles was sort of like, hey, you know, we like Earl Weaver, I guess, right? And when they were getting serious talks about hiring Earl Weaver, he was coaching in double A, right? And during a three-game series in double A, he got kicked out of every damn game of a three-game series. He was just not having it with these umpires, man. And the the owner of the Orioles was like, Yo, if we're going to hire Earl Weaver, like, this doesn't make any sense because he can't even stay in the game. But to me, man, I think one of the best things you can do if you're a manager of a team is get ejected, right? So, for example, David Ross, he signed, he took the Cubs job this year. He was the Cubs manager, and the Cubs sucked. They got beat by the Marlins in the postseason, which, what fucking, what's new, man, right? Like, the spots on my liver because the Cubs lost again? Yeah, I guess so, dude. Those liver enzymes are really messed up right now. <laughs> I only need a transplant. You know, it's no big deal. But anyway, so I think, you know, you've got managers these days, like, you know, thank God Dave Roberts finally got a World Series, but I think, you know, if you want to fire up the troops, I think one of the best things you can do is go out there and get ejected. You know, go out there, tell the umpire that you had a great night last night with his mom <laughs> and, you know, that um, it's going to happen again and he can stick it up his ass and then just get ejected. You know, I think that's it. So, yeah, but Earl Weaver, he was definitely that dude, man. He even, Earl Weaver, even got kicked out of an exhibition game in Japan. And I'm not too sure how that happens. Like, if those are Japanese umpires over there that don't speak English, like, how does that happen? Like, they got to have a translator, and they're like, did you hear what he said? Yeah, we got to kick him out of the game, man. Like, I love it, dude. But what a wild guy Earl Weaver was. Oh, also, also, Earl Weaver got ejected. I don't know what year it was. I think it was in 69. Earl Weaver was, in 1969, Earl Weaver became the first manager in more than 60 years to get ejected from a World Series game. And I truly believe he did it because he wanted to fire up the troops, man, because you got to be a ride or die, man. If you're not willing, you know, to uh, to get kicked out of a game and to fight for your team, I, you know, a lot, of, a lot of that's intangibles, man. Like, the game of baseball so much mentally in the head, and... I think if you feel that your umpire will, you know, help you hide the body, then I think you're rocking. <laughs> Listen to this, though, man. Earl Weaver, dude, he 
he was arguing with an umpire one time and he tells the ump he says i'm gonna check the rule book on that and the umpire goes here use mine and earl weaver goes that's no good i can't read braille <laughs> i'm rolling man he even ripped up an umpire's rule book one time when he gave it to him like he didn't give a shit man but listen i think one of the funniest okay so listen to this one of you can go to youtube and Earl Weaver's got like this five-minute tirade with an umpire where he tells the ump over and over again, you're trying to fuck us, right? And it is one of the most all-time things. Now, what's interesting about it is the whole thing's mic'd up. So if you're wondering why it's mic'd up, because there was a, the first base umpire, and this guy's name was Bill Holler, right? And he was doing, they were filming a documentary for the day and life of an MLB umpire. Now, I assume at this point that Earl Weaver must have figured out what they were doing because it was the first inning, one out in the first inning, and the first base umpire, Bill Holler, calls a balk on Earl Weaver's pitcher, one out in the first inning. Earl Weaver goes straight out there, starts yelling at the guy. He's like, you're trying to fuck us, this, that, and the other immediately gets tossed and everything is on the mic and i think that was just earl just being like hey man i want to get in on this because if you really want to know a day in the life of an umpire you need to know how blind and dumb they are and that's what he did man and it was one of the best tirades ever and earl would just get down man he would kick dirt on umpires love to kick dirt he would also put his hat on backwards so he could get as close to the umpire as possible without touching his face so you know you think like Cal, you think uh, King Griffey Jr., right, with the backwards hat, but the originator, again, may have been Earl Weaver, one of the best stars of the 70s. Okay, one of my next favorite players of the 70s, Phil Garner. Okay, first and foremost, Phil Garner had a mustache that was so strong, it looked like he had a squirrel on his upper lip. Like, I'm talking the squirrel from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation that snots runs through a door for just a Thick mustache, man. Like, he looked like he could have played Wyatt Earp in Tombstone, which is one of the best movies ever. Tombstone, Days at Thunder, Field of Dreams. Love him, man. But that's neither here nor there. And on top of that, Phil Garner may have had one of the best nicknames in all of baseball history, Scrap Iron, because he was just a scrappy and gritty dude, right? Now, Phil Garner, I never knew this, came up with the Oakland Athletics, so he was drafted by the Athletics, and he was actually on the Athletics when they were, you know, winning some of the World Series in that three-peat in the 70s, but he was a bench player slash minor league player, so he didn't get down on any of that, right? But in, I think it was 77, Phil Garner gets traded to the Pirates, and that was good for him because he got a lot more playing time. But I'm wanting to say he wasn't that great in the field and sort of made a lot of errors, but he also was really good at turning double plays, and he could take the hit at second base because he was such a strong dude, man. But Phil Garner was also clutch, right? So check this out. The Pirates of 1979, the We Are Family team, phenomenal team. Now, the 79 Pirates, one of my favorite teams of all time, right? Willie Stargell at first base. Now, this was his age 39 season, but he had an excellent season with a 904 OPS, 32 home runs at 39 years old. Willie Stargell was the leader of this team. That's why they called him Pops. But you also had Dave Parker, who was, I think, maybe in the second year of his big contract because he was getting paid a million dollars a year. He hit 25 home runs and batted 310. 
but you also had Omar Marino in center field. You had Bill Madlock at third. You had Tim Foley, Rennie Stinnett, a really, really good team. But one of the guys that you may not hear enough about, and like obviously, like the guys that were the heavy starters on this team that I just named, like they were all good dudes. But Phil Garner played in the infield and he played 150 games that year and got 612 plate appearances, right? And if you know Phil Garner, you may only know him because he coached the 05 Houston Astros. But if you're, you know, a little bit older than me, then you know Phil Garner as the gritty player he was. But the reason why I wanted to talk about him is because he was really important to the 1979 We Are Family Pirates in the World Series. He went 12 for 24. And then in the NLCS, he batted 417. So he was a clutch guy. He was a guy you could count on, right? And that's what I liked about him. He played a huge role in that situation. And even his 1979 season, he batted 293 with a 359 on base and an 800 OPS. He had 11 home runs with 32 doubles. Phil Garner was a good dude, but he was also known. <laughs> Phil Garner always had a massive huge dip of chaw in his cheek. I'm talking probably the size bigger than a baseball, but smaller than a softball, man. Like if a rookie took a dip of chew that big, they would be like the kids on the sandlot and just barfing up their lungs. Like I remember the first time I took a dip, I thought I was going to die, dude. Me and my buddy Danny, I was, I think 18 when it happened. And me and my buddy Danny were painting my S10. So I had an S10 and we were doing full-on body work on it. So we fully bagged the truck, shaved the taillights, put Cadillac taillights in it, shaved the door handles. We kept the body line. We welded the tailgate completely shut so it curved around the bed. So fully shaved on the back, right? It was phenomenal, dude. The Cadillac taillights were... Um, they were horizontal on the back, like on the top of the tailgate. Really slick truck, man. Had a 4.35 speed in it. The thing would do a hell of a burnout. I'm talking one tire fire, man. All I wanted to do on a Friday night was cruise town and do burnouts, right? That's the way it was. So while we're painting the truck, he's like, hey, man, have you ever had any chew? It was a dip, right? It gives me a dip of skull. I'm like, nah, man, I never have. So I took the dip and I put it in my lip. And for about 15 minutes, I felt like I was on top of the world. I'm like sand in the truck. I'm super energized. And then as soon as it went away, it went away. And I was like, I'm going to die, man. I'm getting the sweats in the whole night. So when I tell you Phil Garner's dip would kill a mere mortal, it might kill a horse, man. Like you could get a contact buzz off of it. It was so big. But, you know, and that's just, that's one of the good things about Phil Garner, man, because he embodied the grit of the 70s, and he was a clutch player. He was a team player, and even after he left the uh, – let me think about this. He was on the Pittsburgh Pirates, and you know I don't know where he went after the Pirates, but he ended up on the Astros. Now, the 86 Astros are one of my favorite teams ever, man, because they had like Glenn Davis, Jose Cruz, who I'd like to talk about if I have time, but that might have to wait till the next podcast. They had Mike Scott, Nolan Ryan – um, whomever getting, oh, Billy Hatcher, Kevin Bass, um, Denny Walling, and uh, Alan Ashby. Alan Ashby. Great team, man. But Phil Garner 
was playing off the bench that season in a supporting role. And at age 37, he had a damn good season. He was a good leader on that 86 Astros team. He batted 265 on the year, still stole 12 bases, and had nine homers and 41 RBIs and 347 at-bats. Phil Garner, damn good gritty 70s player. Okay, but listen— this next 70s player, I'm super excited about. I'm talking about one of the coolest dudes of the 70s, Bake McBride. Listen, Bake McBride, this is a guy, strong stirrups. He wore a good set of high stirrups, man. He was about it, dude. It wasn't uncommon to see him in the pony cleats, and he also... Had a big afro, huge afro, right? And he wore the nacho helmet, right? So he wore the batting helmet with no ear flaps on it. You know, a la John Olerud, Dick Allen, you know, studs like that. Ozzie Smith, right? And one of the key tenets, I feel like, listen, if you're going to be a gritty baseball player, if you want to take out a second baseman, run over a catcher, you know, charge him out and beat someone up or lead your team in game-winning RBIs, which is a phenomenal 70s stat, you've got to have hair that sticks out of the side of your helmet. I, like That's a given right there. If you do that, you've essentially added 25 horsepower to your game, right? I remember, listen, here's a funny story. We used to drag race a lot in high school. We would go out. Um, there was a, really a big strip of road by our high school. And we would drag race up and down it, man. And I remember I had an S10, dude, and I had, uh, you know, straight pipes on it, man. It was loud, dude. And I remember going out to drag race, man. And before I would drag race, I would pop the hood and the, the air filter cover. I would unscrew it and I would flip it over so more air could get in there when I drag raced my four-cylinder S10. But that was before I had the V6 S10. I wrecked the four-cylinder S10. It was the 2.5 Iron Duke. It was actually the one my dad drove, which I've talked about before. We would drive me to baseball practice in it with the overflowing ashtray and everything. He gave me the truck when I turned 16, but somebody hit me and then it got wrecked. But needless to say... That's what having the hair outside of your helmet's like. It's like having the Canon filter extra horsepower. Because we were 16 and we were drag racing our trucks. We thought Canon filters were the legit stuff, man. And drag racing was legit, right? But listen, not to get too far off topic, man. If you want to play your full game, simply put, you got to have hair sticking out the side of your helmet. No ifs, ands, buts about it. Bake McBride had it, dude. But Bake McBride, first and foremost, he was a, you know, he was a stellar leadoff hitter. But, you know, his injury sort of, you know, got to him a little bit. But what I find so interesting about Bake is he, um, one, like I said, was such a gritty dude because so often he, you know, he played injured, right? So he would play next to Lou Brock. He would play next to Lou Brock in St. Louis. And there were so many times that Lou Brock would play with Bake McBride. And he said that Bake was so injured he shouldn't even be playing in the damn game, but he kept going anyway because he was such a tough dude. Listen, Bake had a lot of knee problems and a lot of ankle issues, and that probably stemmed because he was just so damn fast, right? You know, a lot of freak athletes like Bo Jackson, you know, with his hip injury when his hip popped out of place, that essentially happened because he got tackled from behind in the sheer force and velocity of him running popped his hip out of place, right? Because Bake McBride wasn't a heavy dude, but he was a really fast guy, right? And so, and also one of the things I love about Bake was that he didn't even play baseball in high school. He only played football and basketball. So 
when he went to college, that's when he started playing baseball, not until college, which is so wild. Because in game one of the 1980 World Series, he had a three-run home run, and he's got a World Series ring. But yet didn't play baseball until college, like on a team like that, like that. Obviously, he had played baseball. But I'm talking like organized, like team baseball, right? He just didn't do it. He was a track and a, a football and a basketball guy, right? But I think that's just so impressive that a guy can just pick up a bat and start hitting. Like hitting a baseball is like so unbelievably hard. Then once you get to the pro level, like that's crazy. But Bake McBride was consistently a 300 hitter, right? Back when being a 300 hitter was actually. You know, like you had pride in hitting 300, right? Like there were guys who was the guy like in the 1920s that died and on his headstone, he got here lies a 300 hitter. Like batting 300 used to mean something, man. Like these days, nobody cares if they bat 300. They just want to hit home runs. They don't care if they strike out 150 times. But Bake McBride, dude, he hit, shoot, 1977, he hit 339, man, with a 392 on base. He was a leadoff hitter, man. Bake was a damn good leadoff hitter, but I just like him because he was tough, man. So part of the reason why I got Bake McBride on today's list of players to talk about is, one, primo, primo 70s style, dude. Like, I'm telling you, man, if you, you should, like, I feel even as a father, like, I have to have hair hanging out the side of my helmet because, Simply put, my wife has to know that I can fix stuff. And when my daughter gets old enough, she's got to know that, you know, I could fix stuff or I could beat someone up for if I had to, right? I always tell my wife that I want to beat someone up for. And if I feel like if I've got hair hanging out of my uh, hat, like I feel like that does it for sure, man. But and on top of that, too, it's just Bake was just such a gritty, gritty dude, man. He also, though, played in an outfield with Gary Maddox, who also had a stellar throw. And then Greg Luzinski, the bull, man. Primo Husky power hitter. You got to love it. Oh, crap. But also, before I get, listen, Bake McBride's dad, who was also named Bake McBride, he was a pitcher in the Negro Leagues for the Monarchs, man, which is awesome. So it's obvious that, you know, Bake McBride came from a baseball family, which is completely awesome. But also, check it out. Bake McBride's real name is is Arnold Ray McBride. His dad was also Arnold Ray McBride. Now, somewhere along the way, um, Bake McBride's dad, Bake McBride Sr., got the nickname Bake. And then it was handed down to Bake because they called him Little Bake. There's a lot of bacon going on right here, right? Damn, I could really eat some bacon, by the way. Um, but what's best is nobody knows where the nickname came from. Like, Bake would always get asked, like, where'd the nickname come from? And he'd be like, well, it was handed down from my dad, but nobody knows why it happened. And I feel like that's the coolest thing ever. Like, have you ever had a buddy that, like, you knew his nickname but didn't know his real name? Like, I got called Q-Dog from, like, sixth grade until, like, five <laughs> years ago, man. And, I mean, you got to have a good nickname, right? Like, I would – I maybe think I could legally change my name to Q-Dog. It would be D-O-G-G. I don't like the D-A-W-G spelling. But I definitely like the D-O-G-G spelling. But I don't know how my wife would feel about being called Courtney Dog or my daughter. She could be Emmy Dog. <laughs> All right, this is the last guy I'm going to be able to cover on this podcast. And I have to talk about him because his 1976 season was unbelievable. I mean, he was the rock star of Major League Baseball for 1976. MLB hadn't seen anything like it. And it was the bird Mark Fidrich, right? At the age of 21, in 1976, he had one of the best pitching seasons ever for a rookie. 
he got second in the Cy Young to uh, Jim Palmer, which uh, he really probably should have won the Cy Young because of really what he meant to the team. Like Jim Palmer won it because he won 22 games in uh, like maybe 37 or 40 starts. I think Jim Palmer started 40 games. This was when, you know, they would throw you when pitchers threw forever, right? Like 150 pitches wasn't anything. Like I miss that shit, man. You know, some of that, uh, you know, put the pitcher out there and just 150, 160. Nolan Ryan would do a lot of that, man. Like 150, 160, 180 pitches. Um, but Mark Fidridge did a lot of that too because so Jim Palmer started 40 games in 1979, and I think he won 22 games, right? And Mark Fidrich only started, I think, 29 games, and he won 19 games, but he also threw 24 complete games, including multiple extra inning complete games. I want to say like three out of like eight starts or something like that, he threw like... 11 inning complete games and then through like another three nine inning complete games like they just threw him out there but he was shutting guys down man and you know this was really at a time where like I said the you know Jim Palmer winning the Cy Young in 76 probably threw like 350 innings or something like that maybe yeah probably about 350 innings no that seems like a lot hold on here let me check that real quick Jim Jim Palmer, that seems like a lot of innings. Were guys still throwing that much? No. In 1976, he threw not 350 innings. Jim Palmer in 1976 threw 315 innings, right? But um, Mark Fidrich would have probably only thrown... Sorry, let me check this out real quick. I'm holding my mouth completely far from me. I just don't want you guys to hear me breathing. 250 innings and only started 29 games. But 24 complete games. Astronomical. But what I'm saying about um, Mark Fidrich is he had excellent control of his fastball. He could throw it hard, and he could really control it, right? And those are just huge numbers for him. But he won Rookie of the Year, right? But the sad thing about Fidrich is really the only great year he had was 1976, but when he was having it, it is one of probably the most capturing seasons ever as far as an athlete, you know, let alone a baseball player, but an athlete in general capturing a nation. Mark Fidrich did it. Hell, he at the beginning of the 77 season, he was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Like the only other athlete, there, I think there were two guys that were on Rolling Stone cover before Fidrich was, and one of them was Muhammad Ali, right? Like, that's how big Mark Fidrich was, right? It was unbelievable. But one of the coolest things about Mark Fidrich was just his exuberance on the mound, right? He comes up at 21, and he's playing the game like a little leaguer, like even in 76, because free agency came around, what, maybe like mid-70s or something? By 76, the reserve clause was gone, right? But obviously, Mark Fidrich was under team control, right? I could be wrong on all of that, but it's like what I'm getting at is in 1976, baseball was big business for the players, right? Baseball players wanted to get theirs. But after the 76 season, he didn't even get an agent. Him and his dad negotiated salary with the Tigers because Mark Fidrich really just loved the game of baseball and wanted to be a Tiger. He liked where he was at, and he played the game just like all he wanted to do was have fun, man. He was able to like block out the the vast business bullshit 
of Major League Baseball and just go out and have fun, man. He would listen. So when he would pitch, when he would pitch, if his infielders would make like his shortstop would make a routine grounder and he would like tell his shortstop thanks and like after the inning like shake his hand. He was he worked with such love and gratitude for the game of baseball. It's like you can go to YouTube and watch his game in 76 where he pitched prime time on Monday Night Baseball back when they had Monday Night Baseball, which I think they should bring back. And he's constantly shaking hands with his players, telling them thanks for making a play. And what's so funny about the whole thing, and not really funny, but it's just joyful to watch because you can see his love for the game. He's, you know, he's talking to himself on the mound, hyping himself up. He's talking to the ball, and he's not trying to be a showboat. He's just playing baseball, I think, the way we all want to enjoy baseball, which is strictly for the love of the game, right? When you look... At baseball today, you know, and part of the reason why, like, my Instagram and the podcast has sort of turned into, like, a throwback and nostalgic production is because, you know, we can find so much joy in it in the past with the way things were and apply it to our current life now and sort of strip down the technology that's around us and really enjoy the bare bones of life, which I think is having fun with the people around us and spending time with family. And when you watch Mark Fidrich's pitch, you can watch that game on YouTube with the Yankees. And it's so joyful to watch because he's having fun. Like I said, he's manicuring the mound. He would smooth out the mound with his bare hand, talk to the ball. He would talk to himself. He would actually hold his arm out and like point it to the plate in like the direction he would want the ball to move and where he would want it to go. And it's just this genuine exuberance where you can watch the game and just have a good day because he was just so fun to watch. And I feel like, you know, talking about Fidrich sort of, you know, I think brings us back to where maybe, you know, we all want to be in our life, which is the simplicity of the things that really make us happy. You know what I mean? Like how much are we in our phones? How much time are we not spending with family? How hard is it to enjoy baseball's current product because it's filled with advanced data and all this stuff that Goose Gossage (laughs) hates a lot, right? And I do think, you know, talking about a player like Mark Fidrich and, you know, watching his start and looking how he, you know, enjoyed baseball, he stripped down all the bullshit and just enjoyed it and didn't care about anything else. When he pitched that game against the Yankees in 1976, Thurman Munson was so pissed. He thought he he thought Fidrich was on the mound showing him up, and he truly wasn't, man. Fidrich was asked about all the stuff he does on the mound, and his response was, well, I don't really know what I do on the mound. I just go out there and, you know, sort of have fun and pitch the game, and that's what he did. But one of the things I like about Fidrich and one of the reasons why I'm talking about him on this podcast was, yes, because of his 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 genuine exuberance, but he was also like a supremely optimistic guy, man. And you could see it in him, right? Even after his baseball career, he wasn't, you know, down and out about anything. He got a... I, he started like a rock hauling business or dirt hauling business or something and had a farm in, I think, Massachusetts probably because that's where he was from. I don't know if I can say Massachusetts well. <laughs> Massachusetts. Yeah, however you say the word. I don't know, man. I'm from the Midwest, bruh. And don't make fun of me for not being able to say that word. I know you're listening to this saying, what's wrong with this guy, dude? There's a lot wrong with me. But he... um. 
you know, post-baseball career, when the fame was gone, he just worked on his farm and just loved doing it, man. And he would come out the baseball game sometime. I'm wanting to say I was watching the 86 ALCS with the Red Sox and the Angels, and he was at a game one time, and the camera was on him, and he was waving super happy, and he just continued to enjoy life. And you got to wonder for a guy that, you know, pitched all those innings in one season then sort of was never the same guy that he could harbor some sort of just, you know, being pissed off because the way it happened, and he wasn't, right? So when you look at the way Fidrich was, it wasn't an act, man. He wasn't hot dogging or showboat anybody. It's just who he was, and the fans knew it, right? So in that primetime game against the Yankees, like I said, it was on Monday Night Baseball, he's pitching in front of just under 48,000 people, and apparently there were another 10,000 people that couldn't even get in. They were turned away, right? Because at this point, you know, Mark Fidrich is a star, and wherever he's going at home or on the road, you're talking 40 to 50,000 people who want to see this guy pitch, right? And he pitches a complete game. He only gives up one run, and Elrod Hendricks hits a home run, right? So the game's over, man. And when the game's over, he runs around the infield, like shaking hands with all of his infielders, just telling them, hey, man, thanks for the good game, and thanks for what you did for me because I couldn't have done it without you. I think he only struck out like six or seven guys maybe, so it, there were a lot of balls in play, right? And so he leaves and goes back to the clubhouse. Game's over. It starts to rain. They all go to the clubhouse. Nobody in the stands. Nobody leaves. They want a curtain call. The whole the whole crowd at Tiger Stadium starts chanting, we want the bird. We want the bird, right? During the game, they were chanting, go bird, go. And they weren't leaving until he came back out. So security goes back there and says, Mark, you got to come back out. These fans want you. So he comes out, and you can tell just this young 21-year-old pitcher is so happy, so humbled, and it's like he's shy, like he wants to go out but doesn't because he's so bashful and just overwhelmed with the gratitude that the crowd has. And the guy calling the game on Monday Night Baseball was Bob Prince. He said, of all the years I've been doing this, I've never, ever seen a player get a curtain call. This is the first time. And they wanted him to come out, man. You know, like, if you go to a baseball game today, do fans are leaving by, like, the sixth or seventh inning because they want to beat traffic to get home. And that's what I'm saying about, like, all this stuff. Why I like to talk nostalgic baseball so much is to sum up today's society a lot of times or today's baseball game, we all want to leave life in the sixth or seventh inning to get home. But Fidrich was that player that would enjoy everything fully in the moment. And it was just the small things that he enjoyed, and it bled over to all the fans. So you had 48,000 people plus another 10 outside that didn't want to go anywhere because they just wanted to see Mark Fitters. And for that reason, that's why he made this episode of the podcast, man, just a sweetheart of a guy. But unfortunately, he passed away young at like 54. He actually died on his farm. He was working on his big truck, like his big truck that he would haul stuff in. And I think like his shirt got caught around the drive shaft and it suffocated it, man. Absolutely awful, dude. There's the MLB network did the documentary on the bird and it's so sweet, man. His wife and his daughter are in it. 
and they get like a group of people from his hometown, which I think is Northboro, Mass. I'll just say Mass because my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth and I can't say Massachusetts. And I still truly don't know how to say the word. And it's just a sweet scene, man. Like, put it this way. If you like the movie Field of Dreams, but just want to watch something else, watch the Bird documentary, man. Because it is centered around baseball, family, and really just the bare mechanics of what's so great about baseball. And I love it. All right, everybody. Well, that concludes today's episode of The Greatest Show on Dirt. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I'm completely just humbled and taken back by the amount of people that say they're listening to the podcast the amount of people that follow the podcast on social media so thank you so much you have no idea how much i've enjoyed you know doing this and talking baseball with people and the amount of you know messages and comments that come in because i love it man you know a lot of folks if, you, if you've messaged me and told me that you like the podcast and you get something out of it thank you so much because i get the exact same thing out of it which is just to talk old school baseball you know talk family talk nostalgia and you know just get a lot out of it and i absolutely love it so thank you for that if you don't follow us on social media instagram is greatest show on dirt twitter is greatest on dirt and facebook your search greatest show on dirt but until next time thank you for listening and have an awesome week take care guys